Our text this morning is Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 24 in Luke 21. Luke 21, 5 through 24. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of, you, some of you they will put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country enter it. For these these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive among all nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, Father, as we uh, approach this text, as we approach Christ's words, Father, I pray that you would use your word to minister to our hearts, to strengthen us, to expose sin, to bring us to Christ, to uh, strengthen our love for Christ, uh, and to strengthen our love for a lost world. Uh, Father, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the message is enduring witnesses. And the question I have for you 
to begin is this. Christians, as the culture becomes more and more intolerant of you, will you faithfully endure the attacks or will you conform under them? Will you feel sorry for yourself when this happens? Or will you love those who are persecuting you? Will you prove that you love this world or will you prove that you are longing for a city that has foundations? A city that will last uh, forever. John Fox, who wrote the famous Fox's Book of Martyrs, says this, A good Christian is bound to relinquish not only goods and children, but life itself for the glory of his Redeemer. Therefore, I am resolved to sacrifice everything in this transitory world for the sake of salvation in a world that will last to eternity. And within that same book, uh, he speaks of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Maybe you've heard of them, but on October 16th, which would be yesterday in 1555, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake for preaching the justification by faith alone. Not salvation by faith plus works, but by faith alone. Standing against the Catholic Church. And it is recorded as they are chained to the stake and the fires are being lit. Mr. Latimer said this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England that it'll never be put out. And I just want to say, Oh, yeah. Play the man. Master Ridley, be of good cheer. They're lighting the fire. Be of good cheer. There's a candle being lit that might never be put out. Come on. Endure. Stand for what is true. What we see in this text before us is Jesus Christ getting His disciples ready for persecution in the immediate and in the time to come. What we see in the textual challenges when we look at verses 5 through 24 and we compare it to the Gospel of Mark and we compare it to the Gospel of Matthew, Mark and Matthew are really close, but Luke takes, uh, says things uh, or, or I should say, Matthew adds things that Luke doesn't have. And the question we should ask when we're interpreting a text is, 
What's Luke's point? Why is he taking some of the things out of Mark, which was written first, and putting in what he is putting in? And you can go study this, but I'm going to tell you what I think uh, he's doing. When you read Matthew and Mark, which would be uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, what you see they are highlighting is this. The destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, and the coming, the second coming of Christ, are going to be similar. And that the destruction of Jerusalem is a type of an anti-type that is coming. And throughout the scriptures we see these. Uh, you take, for example, when Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, the first thing they do is they realize their guilt and shame and they make for themselves uh, clothing out of leaves. And you'd say, all right, they're clothed. That's good. Well, by the end of chapter 3, God clothed them with animal skins. So there was a sacrifice. Their clothing didn't work to cover their shame. But God clothed them. Right away in Genesis 3, God's saying, Ridley and Latimer are right. You can't cover your shame with your works. I got to cover it for you. And so animals would have had to been killed. And as God drives them out of the garden, he puts these angels with flaming swords, seraphim, in front of the garden, saying, because of your sin, you're separated from the presence of God. So then when God instructs Moses to uh, build the tabernacle and eventually uh, the temple, there's a curtain that separates them from the presence, the most holy place. And on that curtain, God had them sew into it seraphim with flaming swords. And so you can see the types starting to uh, build up. The, the angels that were separating sinful man from God are now in the curtain of the temple and sacrifices, animals are having to be sacrificed for the sins of the people and the high priest that's going to go behind the curtain once a year. And we know that this culminates into the person of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. All those sacrifices were small types of the anti-type, which was Christ. And as Jesus' body and flesh was torn, the curtain tore and no longer was sinful man separated from God. We were able to enter in to relationship with him because Christ was the great high priest. Christ was the actual sacrifice that made it so man could be reconciled back 
into the presence of God. And so we see all throughout the scripture, type, anti-type. So Matthew and Mark highlight, as you're reading and you're trying to figure out when things happen in the end times, you know he's talking uh, uh, what seems to be about the end times, but then it's like, is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or is he talking about the end? And the point they're making is, is they're similar. As surely as the destruction of Jerusalem happens, just as sure as that, when you see that happen, you can know for sure the Son of Man's going to come. And those similar type things are going to happen. So when people decide which view they're going to take in end times, uh, we've already talked about this, the preterist view is a view that views the book of Revelation and the prophecies about future things being totally fulfilled in 70 AD. So it's all talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and the idea there is that Christ came spiritually in 70 AD in judgment, and then the new covenant started. Uh, that what they would say is, just like when you became a Christian, uh, you became a new creation. And that's what happened in 70 AD on this earth, spiritually. The new covenant started. But what I'm going to recommend to you is there's a mistake there. Yes, you're supposed to see the destruction of Jerusalem, but you're also to see the greater type, the second coming of Christ. Matthew and Mark highlight how they're similar. Luke comes along, and in the text we have before us today, he highlights the destruction of Jerusalem, and he takes out all the sentences that would speak of the final type of destruction. So you can see the wisdom of the Holy Spirit because we can see they're similar in Matthew, but Luke helps us see they're two distinct events. And so we can thank God even how both gospel or all the Gospels help us get clarity on things. I'll just uh, give you an example. Uh, last week we look at verses 5 through 7. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with no, noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be one stone, uh, or there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's what we looked at last week. He's saying this temple's coming down. You're so impressed by this amazing architecture. It's coming down. And then Luke says, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? That's question number one. What are these things? Look at verse six. As for these things that you see, he's talking about the temple. And they ask, when will these things be? Question number one, Luke has. And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? Two questions. All right. What, when will these things be and will there be clues? Will there be signs that the destruction of Jerusalem is about 
to take place. Now, if we were to look at Matthew's account in verse 3 of Matthew 24, uh, the disciples say, tell us, when will these things be? Right? We're, same question. And what will be the sign of your coming? Aha, that's a different question. And of the end of the age. Aha. So Luke takes those last two questions out of uh, his gospel. And so he's highlighting when will these things be. Uh, And if if you happen to turn to Matthew, I'll give you a a few sentences that are taken out of this account. Uh, In verse 12 of Matthew 24, he says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow, grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Luke takes that out. And then he also takes verse 15. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So Luke doesn't talk about the abomination of desolation. He talks about the desolation of Jerusalem. All right. And then in verse 21 and 22 of Matthew 24, he also takes this out. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Those are the types of sentences that tells us he can't be talking all about 70 AD. He's talking about the end end. It'll be the worst it's ever been. No one would be saved if those days weren't cut short. And and Luke eliminates all those out of his uh, account of the Olivet Discourse. All right. So I hope I didn't confuse you too much. Uh, But what you should have in your mind, two distinct events Jesus is prophesying. Destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And then next week we're going to see the second coming judgment when the Son of Man comes. All right? So let's look uh, at verse 8. Here's what he says. And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them when you hear of wars and tumults. All right. When is this temple going down is the question. And he says, see that you are not led astray. And you see in your notes that enduring witnesses are discerning. The person that shows up and speaks in Jesus' name and says, this is what's happening, and it's happening right now. He wanted them to be uh, 
discerning, not to buy in to all that. He's speaking to the disciples that are going to be persecuted in the next years after he says this. And Josephus tells us there was many false Christs that came after Christ and, and deceived many people, even into staying in Jerusalem when they should have fled, when they should have uh, taken warning. They should have believed what Jesus said. And so Jesus, in a sense, is saying, be discerning, see that you're not led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. He says, that's, that's not true. Don't be deceived by them. Don't go after them. And then he says, when you hear of wars and tumults. Now, we know what wars are. We might not know what tumults are. Tumults uh, come from a Greek word, uh, akatastia, which means to rise up in open defiance of authority with the presumed intention to overthrow it or act in complete opposition to its demands, to rebel against, to revolt, and to engage in insurrection and rebellion. So there's going to be wars and there's going to be revolutions. Rejection of the current authority, uh, which we can read in, in the year 60 AD, actually happened. The Jewish forces rose up against Rome and began to rebel in uh, 66 AD. And Jesus is saying, this is going to come first. It's not going to happen right away. There's going to be wars and there's going to be tumults. Because they asked for when and they asked for what are the signs. And then he says, do not be terrified. So when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. All right? Enduring witnesses are not terrified. If we're going to be practical, watching Christians over the last year and a half Many of them are freaking out, terrified with the things that are going on and the things that could happen in the future. And usually terrified people become angry people and become people who want to fight a war. I don't like being afraid. And Jesus says, there's going to be wars and tumults and don't be terrified. He's telling his disciples, he's toughening them up to play the man. If you're going to endure, you can't be one that freaks out. And you got to quit listening to radio stations that freak you out. Stop it. Study the Olivet Discourse. Man up. There's a ton of people you can listen to that'll complain, complain, complain. And you don't need to hear it. You need to see Christ. You need to hear from Him. You got to let Him tell you about the future if you're going to endure to the end. 
And so Jesus says, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Robert Stein says, in this section, the end refers to the destruction of Jerusalem, just as mentioned and repudiates the claim of the false prophets in 21.8 that say the time is near. Other things must take place before these things occur. And then we get to see the other things in verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. Now Luke shows the shows us the fulfillment of these things and uh, some of these things in Acts eleven twenty eight, when he says one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold in the spirit that there, that there would be great famine all over the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So you got to remember the author of Luke is the one who also authored Acts. And this early church experienced all that Jesus predicted here. These wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, uh, earthquakes, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now, someone, including myself, asked, well, what are the great signs from heaven? Are we sure we're talking about just the destruction of Jerusalem. Is that what uh, Luke is focusing in on here? But Josephus, uh, who doesn't write scripture, he's a historian of those days. Here's what he wrote about the time right before the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, and, and I'm picking up in the middle of a paragraph where he's talking about deceivers that deceived a lot of people to stay in Jerusalem and they ended up dying uh, when it was overthrown. Here's what he says. Now a man that is in adversity does easily comply with such promises from these false teachers. For when such a seducer makes him believe that he is to be delivered from those miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such deliverance. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers and such as uh, belied God himself while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so, uh, and did so plainly foretell the future desolation. But like men infatuated without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. So Josephus is saying, Jesus told them. Thus, there was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city and a comet that continued a whole year. Thus also before the Jewish rebellion and before those commotions which preceded the war, when people were come in great crowds to the feast of the unleavened bread on the eighth day of the month of Nisan, and at the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone around the altar in the holy house that it appeared to be bright as daytime. The light lasted for a half of an hour. This light seemed to be a good sign to the unskillful, but was so interpreted by the sacred scribes 
as to portend those events that followed immediately upon it. And so the dummies thought something big's about to happen here. We're see, seeing unusual signs. And the scribe said, yeah, that's just because Passover's coming. As you know, the when Jerusalem began to be overthrown, it was three days before Passover. Those who didn't see the signs, didn't see it coming. Millions were trapped in Jerusalem and the Roman army began to starve them out. It was a five-month war. Many Jewish battles were won in there, but they started to cut off all these runs to bring food back into the city and within the walls. And eventually, uh, Jesus' words were fulfilled and the temple was overthrown. And then we see in verse 12, but before all this, so before even all those wars, he brought us right up to the signs of those days. He says, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Enduring witnesses are persecuted. If you're going to be faithful, this is true then and it's true today, and it'll be true in the very end. If you want to be a witness of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. You're not more smooth than Jesus Christ. You're not nicer than Christ was. If you're going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, this world will reject you. You will be persecuted. Jesus told this to his disciples over and over and over again. And so he after he says uh, that they'll be turned over to kings and governors for my namesake, which happened immediately after that, he says in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to witness. Jesus doesn't say, this will be your opportunity to finally get sympathy in this world. You know, no one ever notices you. No, No one realizes how hard your life is and how much work you do. Now, finally, you're going to be persecuted in such a way that finally people are going to feel sorry for you. That's not what he says. That might be what my heart's doing if things don't start going the way I want. But Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Right? Master Ridley Be of good courage. We're about to light up England. This is our opportunity. You can be pretty sure that Latimer read this text. He knew his opportunity was going to come to bear witness for Jesus Christ. And he was ready for it. Enduring witnesses are, in fact, witnesses, aren't they? And then he says, uh, we're going to see that enduring witnesses are reliant. Look at verse 14. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. 
not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom. I, Jesus is saying, I will speak for you. When this happens to you, don't worry. You don't have to write your sermon. He's not telling pastors they don't need to prepare for sermons. He's telling people that are ready to be killed that in that moment, he is going to speak on their behalf. I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries would be able to withstand or contradict. We got to see this in Stephen, didn't we? What a sermon Stephen gives in Luke's account of Acts as he faces his moment. It was his opportunity. And the Lord spoke through him with the same power that Christ had when he spoke to his adversaries. And so enduring witnesses are reliant. You're not going to endure in your own strength. Peter tells us that it's by the strength of God that our faith will endure to the end. If, it, if ultimately it was determined on how tough we were, how much we could pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we would all fail to endure, right? But if the faith that was began in you was began in you by God himself and it's a supernatural faith, then even Jesus is going to speak through you at the right time and your faith will endure. Tertullian, Tertullian one of the church fathers said, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The seed of the church. If you want to see the church grow, watch some Christians be slain as they're trusting in faith with courage. And the watching audience can't help but say, hmm, this does not look normal. This does not look like anything I understand from a human perspective. And the more Christians they killed in the early church, the faster the church grew. And I could give you hundreds of examples from, I read about a young man that was so courageous when he was thrown into the Colosseum. He was so courageous in front of the lions. There was an account of some pagans that were in the crowd that got saved just off his mere uh, courage uh, as he stood out there. And with his opportunity, he didn't waste it. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they'll put to death and you'll be hated by all for my namesake. All right. That ver those two verses alone tells you Christianity is not summed up by all those little promise books that you see out there. Kind of fluffy, fluffy Christianity. Because Jesus Christ said to his disciples then, which is a type, these types of events are going to 
continue on and will culminate to a final end. He says, even your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, they'll put you to death. And you'll be hated by all for my namesake. I was just listening to Paul Washer. 13 years ago, he predicted, uh, it was a clip saying, he said this 13 years ago. And uh, he says, here's the thing. You will not be persecuted for being such a great Christian. You'll be persecuted as haters, as bigots, as as abusers. Yeah, you're all these martyrs that are our heroes, they were called cannibals. They, they, they were those who were false teachers. No one in the culture was seeing them as these great martyrs for Christ. It was just like Christ is being crucified as a criminal, as an insurrectionist, as a blasphemer. Why do you think it would be different for you and for I? And that's how it was. And for many in this early church, they were not being praised by the culture, but they were being done away with as criminals. Criminals so bad that even parents would turn them over. I always... It was always hard to understand how that could happen. But I wonder how many, well, I wonder how many parents and children in the last year have been divided. And I wonder how deep the divide can be with the different opinions on things. There was just a little taste of, yep, I could see how in short order things get a little rough that even families are split up. Well, it was that way for the early church. And then he says uh, in verse 18, an enduring witness will be rewarded, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain life. <laughs> in which it's like, what did he just say in verse 16? And some of you, they'll put to death but not a hair of your head will perish. And he's saying exactly what Jesus taught. Though you die, yet shall you live. Anyone who trusts in my words shall never die. In a sense that the day we die, we'll be more alive than we've ever been as Christians. To be apart from the body is to be present with Christ. And even that body is going to come back out of the ground when Christ returns. Victory over death. Your body will not ultimately remain dead. Even if you're a non-believer, you'll have a body that will endure eternal punishment in hell. But as Christians, the hope that we have and what Jesus is teaching them. There will be a reward. It's not for naught. Don't be a victim. The, the most ugly thing the church can be is a victim that complains and whines and complains as though there is no victory in the end. There is no hope in the end. 
Now hear me clearly. I'm not saying there's no victims in the world because there is. And Christ stood with the oppressed who were real victims. He stood with them. He he would be the one that would beat up the bully that was harming the innocent. Don't hear me saying that. But even when we are victims, we are sinners that deserve punishment and we're not going to get it. We're not. So we're the type of people that can be victims who still love our enemies. We don't say what they're doing is right. But we can still love our enemies because that's what God has done for us. And then he says, uh, in verse 20, so he already talked about the destruction of the temple. Now he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Luke says, know that it's, who's it's? Jerusalem's desolation. Mark and Matthew talk about the abomination of desolation that sets himself up in the holy place to be worshipped. That Daniel spoke about. But Luke cuts that out and he says when you see the desolation of Jerusalem... Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. What people? Israel. That's who the wrath will be. He doesn't say it'll be the worst day ever. Luke takes that part out. He doesn't say that if he didn't cut those days short, the elect would be destroyed. Josephus tells us most of the Christians got out of Jerusalem. They saw it coming. They saw the signs. He didn't have to stop the destruction of Jerusalem to save the elect. Now in the end, Matthew and Mark are right. Jerusalem will be surrounded again. And similar things, the anti-type, will happen. But here he just says it in plain terms. In verse 24 it says, They'll fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Here's the key word. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Everything he just spoke about is judgment on Israel for rejection of of him as Messiah. And he says they're going to be trampled underfoot until the 
the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Remember back in Luke 13, 34, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, "Aha!" Uh-huh. So they don't see him now. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they're not saying that. They're saying he's an abomination. And so this destruction on Jerusalem is going to be until Israel finally sees their Messiah. And this is in Romans 11 that we've already looked at. He says, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, speaking to Gentiles and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches, Israelites, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, enduring witnesses are humble. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 10, prophesying of this, he says, Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations. Read Revelation 19. I'll make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. Or in Acts 3.18, where Peter says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore, he's speaking to people in Jerusalem, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshings may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now wait a minute, he already sent him. Didn't he? He already ascended into heaven. That he shall send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive. So Jesus is going to be in heaven until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see, Jesus ascends up into heaven until it's time for restoring in Jerusalem for this hardening to be lifted. Two more passages and then we're done. Joel 2.30 I will show you wonders in the heavens and on earth. We're going to see this next week. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There's going to be 
these signs that we're going to read about beginning in verse 25 next week. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, I will, when I restore the fortunes of Judah to Jerusalem. In that day, when the sky begins to change, when Christ comes, in that day, Israel's eyes are going to be open, and no one says it more clearly than Zechariah in chapter 12, in verse 10, he says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Here's what they didn't have when Jesus was there. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day in the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, family in the, of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and the wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, their wives themselves. And then he, first verse of chapter 13 of Zechariah, listen. On that day, what day? A day when Jerusalem is repenting. They're looking on him whom they have pierced. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. On that day, declares the Lord, I'll cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. I'll remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanliness. And I believe Jesus will come out of heaven in his real body. Luke tells us in Acts 1, just as you saw him go up, you're going to see him come down. He went up in a real body from the real earth, and he's going to come down in a real body to the real earth. And what we're going to see is the times of the Gentiles had a limit. That not only is God's grace so great that he can save Gentiles like us, but he also can relieve the hardening of heart so that they can see their Messiah that they pierced and they can repent and trust him. So enduring witnesses are humble. We don't look at Israel and just say, they're just like every other nation. God's done with them forever. I would say, as I read the prophets, as I tried to ask the question, is he done with them? This is what I found over and over and over again. And Christ will return one day. And the question is, if you receive Jesus Christ, here's how you should have received him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. 
The reason why Christians ought to be able to endure to the end is because from the very beginning, they should have said, I'll die for the name of Christ. That's what Jesus said. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. So I'm here to tell you, it's not going to get easier. And we need to toughen up and not get angry. We need to toughen up and become lovers of those who persecute us, blessing those who revile us, which might mean that we need different types of words in our ears if we're going to be those types of people. And that's my prayer for you, that when this world sees a member of Sovereign Grace Church, what they're going to see is they're not being treated fair, but they sure love back and they never deny the truth. They speak the truth in love. And if you're wondering if Christ can save you, if you've done stuff so bad you don't think God could save you, let me tell you what Latimer and Ridley knew so well. No one's salvation is based off anything they did or didn't do. You can't earn it. Salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life you could never live. And if you'll trust in him and say, I know I'm sinful. I know I deserve the just wrath of God, but Christ is my only hope. Then you also can have that same peace And death no longer needs to be this scary monster. But rather we can live with courage. Father, I pray that everyone here would know Christ. Father, that they would know his tender love. That they would know that the sending of Christ was highlighting your love. But Father, that they would also know that Being immersed into Christ means there's a maturing to manhood and womanhood in Christ that is strong and is enduring. And it's not in our own strength, but it is in these promises that even Christ is encouraging his church. Lord, let us take heed to these words in Christ's name. Amen.